you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade or at least grab an extra latte after getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. That's chime.com slash goals24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I am Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, July 31st. Today, the Trump campaign struggles to find its voice on health care, what happens to teens addicted to vaping, and why the Federal Reserve is changing course on interest rates. Right now, we have a dysfunctional health care system, 87 million uninsured or underinsured. We can create a universal health care system to give everyone... Democrats are making health care a central part of all of their campaigns. Yasmin Abutalib is a health policy reporter for The Post. And she was watching on Tuesday night as Democratic presidential candidates hammered home their signature issue. 500,000 Americans every year going bankrupt because of medical bills. 30,000 people Medicare for all dying. will fix that, and that's why I'll Thank fight you, Senator. For Just a point of All the campaigns were kind of fighting amongst each other over who had the most progressive or who had the most generous or pragmatic health care plan. Five minutes away from here, John, is a country. It's called Canada. They guarantee health care to every man, woman, and child as a human right. We are the Democrats. We are not about trying to take away health care from anyone. I'm normally way over there with Bernie and Elizabeth on this one. I hear the others, and I, I have some concern about that as well. So no matter who the nominee is, it seems that health care is going to be a central plank, if not the top priority of their campaign. Medicare for America. That's the concept of my Medicare for all who want it proposal. My plan, better care, is fully paid for. Tell them they got a better plan. I have a better path. I just have a better way to do this. And then there's President Trump. I think we're going to have a great health care package. I think the Republican Party will become the party of health care. So it's no secret that President Trump is very eager to make Republicans the party of health care heading into the election, even though most Republicans want to stay away from it and talk about other things. So Republican strategists are saying that it is a good idea for President Trump to stay away from health care as an issue because it's not going to be a winning issue for him. But what does President Trump think about this? Right. So any Republican running for Congress, whether it's the House or Senate, strategists generally will say they should not talk about health care. And more than that, they should not be rolling out detailed health care plans that Democrats can then pick apart and say that people's costs will still go up or they're not adequately protecting people with pre-existing conditions. President Trump does not care about any of that. He wants to be talking about it. He wants to have wins on drug pricing he can point to to say, look at what we're doing to lower drug prices. So when you talk about the White House pulling together all of these ideas on how to overhaul health care, what are they actually trying to do? So one of the interesting things we found was their ideas for what can be done through executive orders or through regulations 
runs the gamut. President Trump has obviously talked a lot about wanting to lower drug prices. So they're talking about um, an order that would base the price of some prescription drugs on lower costs paid by other countries. But then beyond drug pricing, we've got advisors working on an Obamacare replacement plan that they say would be voted on in 2021 when they hope Republicans control both chambers of Congress again. And beyond that, you've got advisors working on orders related to reducing maternal mortality or addressing issues in rural health and helping rural hospitals or encouraging development of a universal flu vaccine. But it seems like President Trump already had his bite at the apple on this, right? There was a big health care bill. It failed in Congress. It sort of fell apart at the last minute. And if he wanted to change American health care, he had an opportunity to do that. So at this point, what is his whole strategy for changing the health care system actually look like. What you said actually encapsulates how most Republicans feel. They had their shot at this. They failed over and over. They had control of both chambers of Congress and the White House, and they still couldn't get this done, this eight-year promise to repeal Obamacare. Trump has decided they are still going to work on an Obamacare replacement plan that he's saying they'll vote on in 2021. One health economist that we spoke to said it's incredibly ambitious for the White House to think that they can upend the health system. You know, the election's only about a year away. So to think that you could pass an executive order or regulation that Americans would somehow feel between now and November 2020, it's just unlikely to happen. And Republicans in Congress, what are they saying about this? So there actually is a bill in Congress right now that aims to lower drug prices, and it's a bipartisan bill. And basically what that bill would do is for the first time, it would cap price increases in Medicare. And basically any drug maker that raises their price more than the rate of inflation would have to pay money back to the government in the form of a rebate. So this was a bill introduced by Chuck Grassley and Ron Wyden, a Republican and a Democrat, very powerful, but it's already facing a lot of resistance from Republicans. There are some who support it and actually voted for it in committee, but many more seem to oppose it. Republicans have said it's akin to price controls, and that's not what free market Republicans are about. So when you've been talking to people about this, what are you hearing? So the White House is expending an extraordinary amount of time and energy on this. They're meeting at least daily, sometimes multiple times a day, talking about different healthcare executive orders and regulations they can roll out. How can they maintain it so that they're rolling something out every two to three weeks between now and November 2020? Wow. And this is new, right? This this has not been going out the whole course of President Trump's first term, having multiple meetings per day on healthcare. This seems to be something that's really started in the last few weeks or maybe the last couple of months, but definitely as the pressure has been building to do something on healthcare and to show that this administration is addressing Americans' concerns that Trump promised in 2016 that he would address. And what are you hearing about what those conversations are like? Some of them are pretty striking. One source told us about a meeting where one of Trump's top officials was was meeting with some uh, Republicans trying to get them on board with the administration's agenda. And he promised them that they would not allow Democrats to get to the president's left on drug pricing, which is not what you expect to hear from a Republican administration. No kidding. And And you even see a lot of conservative groups running some pretty damning ads opposing the administration's policies. In America... 
The government doesn't set drug prices or block seniors' access to life-saving drugs because a bureaucrat decides it's not worth the price. I mean, there's a lot of money being spent by conservative groups trying to get some of these policies out of the way. Now the Department of Health and Human Services wants to impose the same failed foreign price controls on Medicare. Tell HHS to reject foreign price controls on American businesses. What are the chances that any of these policies will actually come into existence before the 2020 election? It's hard to say, but healthcare generally is a slow-moving space. It's, it's hard to make wholesale changes. Even small changes can be hard. And the other thing about healthcare is you've got really well-financed, entrenched interests who will push back hard against anything they feel hurts their bottom line. The pharmaceutical industry has already shown that they're willing to take the administration to court on policies that they oppose. So they've already won a lower court victory over a rule the administration was set to put into place in July that would have required drug makers to put the list price of their medications in television ads. And if you think about it, this is something that wouldn't really affect their bottom lines. It just would be displaying more information to consumers. But that was something they opposed. They hired very good lawyers and a federal court ruled that HHS had gone beyond its authority in implementing that rule. So even if these were things that President Trump did pass executive actions on, they very likely wouldn't go into effect because they'd be challenged in court immediately. Exactly. And this policy was something that actually was supported by Democrats and Republicans. It wasn't particularly contentious among lawmakers. So even though it had some pretty widespread support, the pharmaceutical industry was still able to succeed in convincing a judge that the administration had gone beyond its authority in doing this. Watching the White House work in a way that seems somewhat frantic right now to to try to come up with real policy proposals on healthcare that they can be rolling out in advance of the election, it kind of seems like the Trump administration sort of backed itself into a corner here, right? That Trump came into 2016 talking all about wanting to repeal Obamacare, making so much of his election about Obamacare. And then the fact that he failed to deliver on that really opened up an opportunity for Democrats. The interesting thing is Trump and the Republican Party's attempts to repeal Obamacare actually made it more popular than it's ever been. So for eight or 10 years, Democrats were on the defense on health care. A lot of people didn't like Obamacare. They were upset that they had to switch insurance or that their deductibles were too high. And then all of a sudden, the Republicans come in and they try to repeal it. And all these terrible reports are coming out about 20 or 24 million people are going to lose health insurance. And suddenly Democrats can make a very strong case for campaigning on strengthening Obamacare. That's just a dynamic that didn't really exist before 2016. So ironically, the Republicans' attempts on health care up until now have only emboldened the Democrats. They haven't had to actually pass anything, but they can talk about strengthening Obamacare and expanding insurance and basically doing the opposite of what Republicans have tried to do. And that's put them in a position they haven't been in in nearly a decade. Yasmin Abutalib writes about health care policy for The Post. To hear more about what Democratic candidates said about health care and about many other issues at this week's debates, tune in to our Thursday afternoon episode for a full debate wrap-up. The first time I used it was my freshman year of high school. It was a Friday night football game. The 
first time using it, you know, it was like a head rush. It was a buzz. But more on a personal level, you know, it felt gratifying. It felt validating seeing that the people around me kind of gravitated towards me when I was using it and I gravitated towards them. So it really felt gratifying and validating for me. That's Luca Connard. He's 16 years old. And he says that what made him so popular was vaping, using Juul and other e-cigarettes that deliver nicotine in cartridges that are known as pods. A lot of people used to call me Chief or Fiend or Kiefer because it's like you're chiefing the pod or you're Kiefing the pod or you're Fiending the pod. And everybody just used to know me as that because I was, everybody knew if, if your Juul was laying around, I, you don't have a pod anymore. And he loved it so much that it completely changed his lifestyle. You know, it was just staying up late, you know, eating junk food and pigging out on some pods. I think the typical time for me to fall asleep was around 6 in the morning. It actually got to the point where I remember my parents, then they took my jewel away. I was like, well, what am I going to do now? And there's a thing where you take apart an old iPhone charger and you just use the cords uh, in there and you get a pod and you just put it onto a coil heats it up enough to smoke and I used to do that 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 was I think that was like a a level where I was realizing like this is a really big addiction I have right now I've talked to other teenagers too who say that the nicotine withdrawal was so severe that it would really dramatically impact their mood and made them sort of impossibly irritable Um, and they were displaying behaviors that really frightened their parents Luca actually went from being a a pretty level-headed kid to being a kid who grew so angry that he was violent. He was punching walls. He was breaking furniture. He was, uh, at one point, he broke a a glass jar and and cut his hand pretty severely. That's Mariah Bullingett. And I cover national education for The Washington Post. Mariah talked to other teenagers who experienced similar vaping withdrawals. And she says that what they described isn't like what a smoker experiences when they quit nicotine. It's more like what people experience when they quit hard drugs. What these kids were describing sounded really unbearable. I talked to one kid, for example, who appeared to be addicted to juuling, and he couldn't go a full school day without using. I mean, there are certainly kids who kind of use at school, but this kid, if he didn't use at school, would develop severe headaches, nausea, and it got to the point that he would eventually have to leave school anyway. So his mother actually sent him to school with nicotine patches. So in Luca's case, what finally made him stop? So his bad behavior sort of progressed. He at one point had a six-minute seizure that doctors were unable to explain. I was in a friend's room. Apparently, you know, I just dropped my phone to the ground, and then I fell off the bed and hit my head. Um, lost oxygen, tensed up. I went blue in the face. I was foaming at the mouth. His mom believes it's linked to the nicotine, although they can't confirm that. And the FDA is investigating a link between seizures and high nicotine exposure. But his mother basically found him an inpatient treatment center where he went for over a month to get treatment. And he initially refused to go, but she said that if he didn't go, that she would call the cops and have them get him on a plane. They told me the night before, they told me, you're going to go there for eight days. They knew it wasn't eight days, but I I see why they told me eight days now, because if they had told me 30 to 45, I would have never gone. And in fact, it lasted more than a month. And that is what eventually got him clean, eventually got him off of nicotine. I want to ask the question of 
why are so many teenagers vaping or trying e-cigarettes? And I feel like part of the answer to that is obvious because teenagers are always trying weird, crazy drugs that are coming out because they're teenagers. But I wonder if there's something particular about vaping that appeals to kids. So I think one piece of it is that teenagers today think smoking cigarettes is disgusting. (laughs) And this is even true for the e-cigarette addicts I talk to. When I talk to a teenager, for example, in Massachusetts who is recovering from a vaping addiction, he said that he hates cigarettes. Really? Yes. So I think the public health community had really cheered the dramatic drop in the number of teen tobacco users. All those ads that people were putting on TV about how gross cigarettes are and how they're going to ruin your life and the the dare stuff, the truth stuff. Well, and and the, you know, the woman who was smoking through the hole in her neck, yeah, I mean, it's unclear, you know, what exactly worked, but something did work. And so this has been really depressing for people who saw that story arc, who declared victory over tobacco, to see this resurgence of a different kind of addiction. You know, and another piece of this for Jules, I think, is that it kind of looks cool. What does it actually look like? So they look like USB drives, basically. And they have a little light that glows at the end of them. So they're just very sleek. And that's another reason why they're popular among teenagers is they're really easy to conceal. And a lot of adults have no idea what they are. So what does Jewel say about the fact that so many people who are using their e-cigarettes are teenagers? So they really try and emphasize that their product is for adults who are trying to quit smoking tobacco. So initially, the Juul ads featured models and people looking cool. It was a very brief ad campaign that came out before the product actually hit the market. And so they often emphasize how brief that ad campaign was. And they faced a huge amount of criticism from Congress to the FDA to the public health community to pediatricians, and they're also facing a number of lawsuits. You know, their critics say, this is a product that you intended for adolescents to use. And the reason they say that is because they point out the fact that they tried to sell themselves initially as this cool product, as a lifestyle product, not necessarily as a product to help a smoker quit smoking. And then they also came out with these cool flavors, like mango. Mango was by far and away the most popular flavor that I heard among the teens that I talked to. They also had another flavor called creme that was sort of like vanilla and custard notes. It sounds, frankly, delicious. And so critics point out, you know, if you're really just trying to get smokers to quit smoking, why are you releasing these fruity flavors that are clearly going to appeal to a younger crowd who doesn't smoke? Is there a chance that either the government or the public health community could do something about the fact that all these teenagers are getting hooked on vaping? I think right now the main concern is trying to slow this epidemic so it does not get as bad as the smoking epidemic among teenagers was, and trying to figure out how to treat the kids who want to quit. Because there really aren't any standardized treatments yet for adolescents, and a lot of the things that we used to use to help adults quit smoking don't have a track record with kids. What's next for kids like Luca who are in recovery? Well, I think 
one of the main challenges that they're going to face is that these products are ubiquitous. Part of what is so challenging for teenagers who are addicted to vaping in particular is even if they manage to kick the habit themselves, frequently when they use the bathroom at school, they could encounter classmates vaping. So they're surrounded by these products. So I think for teens like Luca, the challenge is going to be staying off of nicotine. Mariah Balingit is an education reporter for The Post. Now, one more thing. Good afternoon and welcome. The Federal Reserve did something today that it hasn't done in over a decade. That's economics reporter Heather Long. And that is cut interest rates. We decided today to lower the target for the federal funds rate by a quarter of a percentage point to a range of 2% to 2.25%. It was a modest cut, widely expected 25 basis points. So in real people speak, that means we took the benchmark interest rate from about 2.5% down to 2.25%. If that doesn't sound like a lot, it really isn't. But it should make a number of loans in the economy cheaper. So for instance, I was looking at houses over the weekend and looking at a potential mortgage rate that will should be lower going forward now. Same thing if you're looking for an auto loan or a credit card or a loan to start a business. A lot of people are asking, why is the Fed doing this right now when the economy does look pretty good? Normally, the Fed cuts interest rates when we have problems in the economy. So the last time we were doing this was 2008. With no silver bullet for the economy, the Fed fired a shotgun blast. In slashing its benchmark interest rate to the lowest level ever, the Fed said rates were like... When it felt like the whole world was falling apart financially and economically, unemployment was spiking above 7%. 2.6 million jobs were cut from the economy last year. That's the stock market was falling pretty precipitously. The closing bell at the New York Stock Exchange, the main index, down over 7%. Lost about a third of its uh, value that year in 2008. We had major financial institutions like Lehman Brothers going bankrupt. But what you hear a lot from Fed Chair Jerome Powell and other Fed leaders is, look, we have uh, a lot of slowing going on overseas, some of that because of the trade war in Europe and Japan and China and elsewhere. And we're really worried when those parts of the world catch cold that we will, too, here in the United States. The other problem for the Fed is that interest rates are very low right now. So they're just shy of 2.5 percent. So the Fed doesn't have a lot of medicine to help the economy. And there's a philosophy inside the Fed right now that you want to use that medicine sooner rather than later. There's a lot of risks in in cutting too soon. Uh, The two big ones are, number one, they won't have anything left when the bigger problems come later on. And number two is 
when you lower interest rates, you're encouraging companies and individuals to take on more debt. And if there is a big red flag right now in the economy, it's that corporations have taken on too much risky debt because interest rates are so low, people are willing to, to lend money to try to make a better return, even when it may not make great sense. And so there's concern that as you lower those rates, are you just spurring more of this, more of this problematic lending? The main impact that this rate cut is going to have is to spur the stock market. Normally what happens is there's also what you might call a real economy or a Main Street bounce in the sense of the loan rates are going to be cheaper to get a mortgage or to get an auto loan or to get the amount you pay on credit cards. Uh, But the reality is those rates are already pretty low right now. It doesn't make a huge difference to have an interest rate cut that's going down by a modest amount. It's it's probably not going to lure a ton more people off the sidelines. The real thing everyone was watching today around the world and certainly in the White House is what is the Fed signaling about the fall and the rest of the year? Because again, everybody was sort of expecting the Fed to cut today. But you almost always in the past, historically, the Fed has never done what we call one and done. They always cut a few times. Wall Street is currently pricing three rate cuts in this year. So two more, likely one in September and one in December. The president, he constantly calls for a large cut by the Federal Reserve. He said earlier this week the stock market could be 10,000 points higher if the Federal Reserve you know, would lower these interest rates. And so it presents a bit of a problem for the Fed because are they potentially being bullied either by the president or more likely by the market? So it's a, it's a really tricky time for the Fed. How can they signal that they're watching carefully and they're willing to do whatever it takes to extend this recovery while not promising the world? Heather Long is an economics reporter for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.